Hello and welcome to the Random Works podcast. Today I have Crystal Lee, who is a PhD candidate at MIT and a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University, who works broadly on topics related to the social and political dimensions of computing, data visualization, and disability. She also conducts ethnographic and computational research on social media communities like COVID skeptics, Chinese cyber nationalist fandoms, and data holders. And her research has been supported by the National Science Foundation, Social Science Research Council and the MIT programs for the digital humanities. Previously, Crystal was a visiting research scientist at the European Commission and graduated with high honors from Stanford University. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to have you here. And you have had a really interesting journey in science for quite a while. And where does it all start for you? Was science something you always wanted to foray into as a child? Or was there something that sparked your curiosity and lo, you took this far? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I guess, I guess when I was a kid, I was always interested in being in academia. I recently, so because of the pandemic, um, I have returned to living in my childhood home. Um, I was looking through some like really, really old um, applications, like, you know, not uh, maybe something that I wrote when I was like 16 or 17. And it said that I wanted to be an economics professor. So I like, I guess that wasn't super surprising to me in terms of like being interested in academia, but in terms of like actual discipline, that was always a kind of big question for me. I think science too was also like a I feel like I had a very different conception of what science was, um, you know, growing up and even like within college that has become certainly more complicated um, since I've been in graduate school. So I think, you know, you can think of capital S science as like the kind of more traditional disciplines like math or physics. Um, but I think, you know, social science and the humanities have certainly had a really important role in interrogating a lot of concepts like quantification and um, computing. And so I think in many ways, I kind of sit at the juncture of like what people think of as traditionally science. Um, I would say that I study the kind of social and political dimensions of science. Um, and I guess as far as like whether or not it's been something that I've always been interested in. I guess like it's always easy to kind of like walk back and like, you know, kind of superimpose a narrative. Um, and so I'm sure I can come up with a story that does exactly that. But I would say by and large, I was interested in academia, but wasn't entirely sure where. That's really interesting. And you talked about how science as a whole is a more all-encompassing term than the stereotypical mm -hmm. physics, math, or this general natural mm -hmm. sciences that one conjures of when one thinks of science. And it's mm -hmm. more of it encompasses both the natural and the social sciences, mm -hmm. the engineering sciences and all. And it ties back to the whole notion of scientists as a natural philosopher that dated mm -hmm. back to the medieval times when people like uh, Newton and all, they were theologists first and physicists second and all. And mm -hmm. th that's something really interesting. And you talked about uh, how pouring into academia and more, specific, uh, um, more specifically talked about having wanted to be an economics professor in some of your application essays and all. So what happened and when did it happen that from economics, you made the whole switch to the history of science and how did that Oh, um, so that is a story that I can tell pretty easily, I think, in terms of timeline. Um, so I think when I was growing up, um, especially when I was in high school, I was really interested in um, high school debate. And I feel like most people I know, like people who are debaters, um, are interested in like foreign affairs of some kind. Um, I think when I applied to college, I really wanted to, you know, work in international affairs, kind of broadly speaking. So whether that meant, you know, for like the State Department or like as a journalist for um, a publication like the New York Times, you know, like I feel like there are people who are interested in covering a lot of these kind of issues that have degrees in political science or economics. And I think I picked economics probably because it was like a little bit more sciencey. There was like some math involved, which is not to say that that's a good reason to do that. 
Um, and so when I started college at Stanford, I think I was technically half political science and half MCS, which is like, I think they call it mathematical and computational science, which is like Stanford version of saying stats. Um, so I guess like poli science stats is kind of like economics. Um, but anyways, while I was doing a lot of this work, I realized that like a lot of quantitative political science um, depends on, um, how do I put it? it? It depends really heavily on being able to quantify a lot of demographics and a lot of the human experience. And as I was doing a lot of this work, you know, I think it was really fun and doing stats was something that I really enjoy. Um, but it made me realize that a lot of these categories are, uh, I mean, it to be like super extreme would be just to say that they're artificial. Um, but I think they're, they're constructed in ways that I think I hadn't fully interrogated. And like, you know, understanding that a lot of these things, even like um, running regression or uh, thinking about correlation, like these are not just things that are like natural and exist in the world. Like humans had a really big part in creating and using a lot of these methods. And so in questioning these methods, that's kind of how I came to the history of science. I realized that there were these like whole groups of people thinking about the history of quantification and what that means for society, what it means for culture. And I think it all kind of exploded from there. That's really interesting. And you talked about how in quantification and all, and uh, um, talking about uh, when uh, we try to think of these things, and typically the natural sciences in particular, uh, maths, physics, and all, there is this whole veneer of objectivity that's attached to them. And that's why for many people, when you sort of try and uh, talk about how AI systems or revolutionary technologies can be biased, and people sort of uh, go, uh, have this whole skeptical argument about how can maths be biased or how can physics be biased. Well, at the end of the day, it mm -hmm. points to more of how um, the fields themselves may not be biased, but they are practiced by humans after all, and our very own human biases do creep into those things. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, like we can scroll back a little bit to what you were talking about with um, natural philosophy and science. Uh, I mean, I think that is really exciting to bring up because there are like these larger questions of like empiricism and what counts as good knowledge um, that I think are really interesting to explore there. Uh, because I think like the, the criticism that I hear a lot about the social sciences and humanities is that it's like not rigorous enough or that it's not scientific, you know, capital S science. And I mean, I think that has a lot of different valences, like either it means that like it's not reproducible or that, um, you know, it, it's based on data that is collected in a subjective way. I mean, I think this is the case with ethnographic fieldwork. Um, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say with all of this is uh, it's interesting to kind of think about the history of objectivity um, when we talk about science because it it establishes the benchmarks of what people think is good evidence and, you know, and it, like by extension, what good knowledge looks like. Um, and when it comes to things like bias and machine learning, I mean, I think we can think of like even simpler examples like regression, uh, which I think people kind of think of as value-free. Uh, when in reality, it was developed very specifically as a method to demonstrate human difference for a eugenicist, right? Like, I think bias in this sense was not a bug. It was very much a feature. Um, and so, you know, thinking about something as like standard deviation as something that's just like a you know, natural mathematical concept it just could not be farther from the truth. Like it was developed specifically to show, you know, why someone, um, you know, who may be different in some way, usually with a disability is, you know, somehow morally inferior or like worthy of punishment. Uh, so, I mean, I think these are all things that are important to keep in mind, like as we're doing things like running regressions.
that's a really fascinating insight you gave and as you talked about a lot of the development has been intrinsically associated with biased activities as such it's not something that developers factor and that was a really mm-hmm. startling but a really insightful of perspective that you shared on all and coming to your grad school journey so uh, you talked about being in academia as such and although you had a slight change of fields but you still your academic progression stayed constant and also was it always a conscious decision to come to MIT to study this whole intersection of science technology computing with society and all or was MIT just one of the few schools that you applied to and the department that MIT served your interest the best and that's how you came here for grad school ah yeah um so I will say that I was very lucky in that um Like I had a lot of people around me in college who had applied to graduate school and so like I had like a huge leg up there in terms of you know just being kind of prepared uh and feeling like I had people who supported me. Um I will say that MIT was my first choice um by a pretty long shot just because like I think the program that I'm in is pretty unique and weird and strange um Like I think it's really good for some things and like will not be what other like it's not for everyone um but it can be a very exciting place. Uh so I think I was maybe not so single-minded to say that like I will absolutely go to MIT but I like definitely really wanted to. Um in terms of whether or not you know it was a conscious opting in I think yes uh, there was also like you know life happenstance um I think it just so happened that whenever I had to make a choice about what I was going to do for like the next year or the next you know however much amount of time like graduate school or like academia was always like an option and it always looked better than the other one um you know for whatever reason like in terms of where I wanted to live in terms of like the kind of freedom that I would have or not have uh So I think it just so happened that it won out in like a couple of crucial junctures but I don't think it was by any means like inevitable. That's really interesting and you are part of two quite diverse departments both the computer science and artificial intelligence laboratory as well as the program on the history anthropology science technology and society so was that intersection always on your mind when you finally came here or did it something develop when you were doing your rotations for grad school or did something else happen and you random walked into these things Yeah, I mean, so I think I was always interested in computing and statistics. Like I, I kind of talked about that in my application and it's always been kind of at the back of my mind. Um I will say that if I look back at my graduate school application, maybe this is helpful for someone out there. Um that the person that I said that I was and the person that I wanted to be in my graduate school application like the statement of purpose has like very little resemblance to the person that I am now. Um so like I think as far as like articulating a project that like looks exactly like you and feels exactly like you um people told me that it would change and it did a lot. Um and I'm really grateful for that. So in no way was this preplanned. Um as far as like how i walked into it i mean i will say and like be super vulnerable here um that i was not very happy my first two years of graduate school i had a really really difficult time um in terms of like acclimating to the environment feeling like i knew what i wanted to do you know i think i was just like very unmoored like emotionally and personally and professionally and so I just did not have a good time. Um I didn't really know what I was working on and I ended up having enough of like a hard time emotionally that I had a little bit of a mental break and just took medical leave for a year um after my second year of graduate school. Uh I think that was really helpful in a lot of different ways. Um I think it was certainly a really really hard time, you know, to try to like seek a lot of mental health help um 
you know, in graduate school, both within a university system and outside of it. Um, so, I mean, I think that was certainly like a huge reset for me in a lot of different ways. Um, and I kind of found the lab that I'm working in, in computer science after I came back. Also through like a series of happenstances, like I went to a workshop um, during IAP, which is like the inter-semester activity period um, at MIT where you can kind of just do something for fun and people offer lots of like, you know, week-long, day-long, month-long workshops. And so I went to one of these and then met someone, um, Alan Lundgaard, one of my collaborators who um, is just really wonderful. And he was like, I really think the things that you're interested in are the things that I'm interested in. You should come to my lab. And then I kind of like weaseled my way in there and told them that I wasn't going to leave <laughs> and now they can get rid of me. So um, yeah, I, I would say that a lot of this is a matter of happenstance. Like it was really hard. Would I do this again? Like probably um, I would prefer not to have like, uh, that's a strange way of putting it. I would say mental health problems are really hard, um, but they get, they got me to where I am now. And I am grateful for that. Those are some really great points. And you talk about having a very hard time uh, initially uh, in grad school and all, and also about feeling not good enough and all. So how did you confront the infectious imposter syndrome? And over the years, how have you sort of learned to cope uh, with uh, grad school, which can be a very high pressure cauldron as elucidated by experience. You talked about having good friends and all and having some lucky breakthroughs and events that actually enabled you to come on the path, uh, to traverse the path that you took till now. So how did you confront the evictions and foster syndrome as well as how, how have you sustained yourself throughout these graduate school apart from the wonderful friends and mentors that you talked about? Um. I don't know that anybody stops feeling like an imposter <laughs> in academia. Um, I feel like it, it is super strange to kind of, let's say like when I was an undergrad, see graduate students who I thought were really impressive and like, you know, really look up to them and like the kind of work that they do. And then, you know, and then like really like see people who just like seem to have everything all together. And you're just like, wow, someday I too can be like that. And then you become friends with them. And then like, you know, at, at some point, like I became, I would say peers with a lot of the people that I really looked up to um, as graduate students. And I, it like just came to pass like, oh, it seems like they're not past their imposter syndrome either, even though like they totally have things together. And then, you know, as I've kind of like progressed through graduate school, you know, you go from like under like senior undergrad students to like early graduate students to people who pass their quals to people who like finish their PhDs who have postdocs who are like assistant professors. I feel like at this point I have friends like kind of all across this um, spread and God, the rat race never ends. Um, so as far as like what I do about it, um, gosh, I don't know, go to a lot of therapy, um, try to do things that are not related to academia. Um, so, uh, you know, like doing things that, like, this is this is kind of a mixed piece of advice, uh, but I, I really like doing something that has nothing to do with academia that like I am not good at. So like, you know, when you go take a class or something like you have to like remember what it feels like to learn something completely from scratch and that has like nothing to do with your work or life whatsoever <laughs> sometimes this can be kind of frustrating like I um really embarrassed to admit this but once I this was right before the pandemic I tried to take up ceramics um this actually like infuriated my imposter syndrome because I was just like so behind in this class like I was just like by far the worst student like by multiple standard deviations um and I think like because I have been used to like at least like understanding the main concepts even if I couldn't follow a conversation like being in a classroom where like I just didn't even really know what was going on <laughs> was kind of a shock but I would say that that was like overall really helpful um, because it just reminds me like you know like there are things outside of life and 
I might be an imposter in one, but like, you know, there are still like lots of other things to do in this world. And I don't know, I feel like that can be a good way to kind of break out of the system. But other than that, I don't know. I don't know that it goes away. Maybe that's depressing. Those are some really prescient insights. And as you talked about the feeling of not good enough is an ubiquitous one in academia, and it never really goes away, no matter at what level you are. And imposter syndrome is there to stay with you. And it's important to, as you talked about, sort of deal with it in numerous ways and all. And it was really interesting to sort of like uh, reconciling yourself with not being good enough rather than trying to sort of uh, uh, putting onus on you for every single thing that you do and all. You talked about taking therapy and all. And these are some things that aren't really frequently talked about in academia and all. And it ties back to the whole uh, thing of not being good enough or being uh, sort of uh, being sort of tripling your existence in front of your peers. But these are something that are equally important, prioritizing your mental and emotional health alongside the grad school work and all. Those were some really decent points that you made. Oh, thank you. So coming to your grad school course um, of projects and all, so how do, was it sort of, you talked about sort of um, picking out a project and a mentor and a lab to work in after a couple of years of tumultuous experience in grad school. So what is the project that you finally picked up that's going to enthuse you for the next uh, two, three years and becomes the crux of the thing that you spend most of your time on in grad school? And what are, what is it you're working on currently? Yeah, so I mean, I think one liberating thing that I have basically come to consensus with with my advisors is that I will not have like a singular project. Um, like, I feel like this is something that was like really hard for me. Uh, like, I felt like I was always going to, I was trying to work towards finding like the project, capital T, capital P. Um, and my advisors were just kind of like, it's okay if you don't do that. Like you can have multiple little projects and then we can like staple them together and uh, think about like the over the underlying concepts uh, across all of these projects. And then you have a thesis from there. And then you kind of decide which projects um, you want to grow even more and um, which ones can kind of stay articles. Um, so as far as like a kind of broader project, I mean, I think as we've kind of discussed, like I'm kind of, I'm fundamentally interested in the, uh, the reasons why people believe what they do and how they use science or scientific reasoning to achieve that. Um, I think there are a couple of ways that people approach this. So I think um, one of the studies that I recently did on COVID skepticism, you know, is about how people are leveraging science to think about the pandemic. I think um, data visualization work, which is the lab that I'm in at MIT, um, you know, is, is a very important way that a lot of people uh, use to convey scientific decision-making. So understanding how and why people use data visualizations, how you can make them more accessible to a wider range of people, um, how you can approach doing data analysis in a way that is attentive to a lot of um, social and economic harm. I mean, I think these are all like, it, it's all part of like a kind of broader project to think about how technology um, and science can be um, approached in a more compassionate, ethical, human way. Uh, so it's really a matter of just kind of thinking about like small offshoots with specific data sets and specific you know concepts that I want to work with. So like, I mean, I think that's one side of the work that I do with um, the lab in computer science. With the lab that I'm in, in um, anthropology, the language and technology lab, I mean, like, I feel like language is something that suffuses everything that I work on, like, you know, the structure of how people talk about what they talk about, um, you know, how they leverage certain linguistic tropes in order to make their point, um, and how they mediate that through technology. I mean, I think that is the crux of a lot of the work that I do on social media, um, and that I hope to do moving forward. 
those are some really, really fascinating um, uh, fields that you're working in. And these are topics that one can call a sort of hot topics of late, of more <laughs> prominent and all, especially as we talked about bias and AI systems. And there are many other things that have come into prominence of late, the, uh, the experiences of the disabled people in academia mm. and elsewhere and all. And these are some things that you have been sort of actively pursuing and all. So what are some startling insights and interesting perspectives that you have garnered over the years of being in these fields? Um, in terms of disability or like inclusion more broadly? Uh, across the whole gamut of your research activities. As gotcha. you talked about, you can't, your research can't be siloed into one particular field, so that's a whole wide mix of a diverse array of fields. So yeah. a diverse array of perspectives, I believe, are in order. So. Yeah, um, I guess maybe like one easy way for me to kind of talk about it is I feel like disability is just kind of neglected as a critical lens. I think people kind of think about it as a matter of legal compliance. Like, are we legally providing the accommodations that we're supposed to? Um, when in reality, I think it's a really important critical lens that you can use for research and like a kind of productive site of inquiry. Um, so what I mean by that is I think with a lot of intersectional approaches to topics like computing, um, people tend to default to race, gender, and class. And you know, I don't begrudge that. I think that has been a really important shift in um, like US cultural studies, like humanistic studies more broadly. Um, but I would really like to see disability included more consistently across those categories and in these intersections. Um, and so, I mean, I feel like it's in some ways, like the, the floor is quite low in just like convincing people that that's like an important component of any project and not just something that happens after the fact. Um, so, I mean, maybe that's more banal, but just people, just getting people on board that that's like an important issue, I think has been strangely difficult. That's a really interesting perspective. And how do you think, uh, what are some ways uh, in which uh, change can be actively enacted? Because once, uh, when one talks about activism and all, these are not some things uh, like uh, one remembers the late Reeves John Lewis, who talked about democracy is something that you actively fight for to maintain. You just can't be sending out hollow mm -hmm. to the notion of democracy every year on some particular day, but rather you fight for it as we see across the United States and everywhere else where um, there have been a whole bunch of right-wing authoritarians who have risen up in mm -hmm incarnation of the former US president and all. And there are people who are actively fighting for their rights and all academics who are bearing the brunt of uh, right-wing privatization of universities and whole bunch of basic science research fields being declared as non-consequential and not important mm -hmm. and all. So what are some ways in which have you seen it's uh, um, have been sort of uh, so, so one has been successful in enacting those requisite changes in academia and elsewhere. Mm, um, well, I mean, I guess I will preface all of this by saying that um, I feel like I have seen a lot of injustice and exploitation across academia. Um, and most of the time when people try to do something, and I think people are trying really, really hard. They have done the most that anyone could possibly do in those circumstances. And a majority of these attempts at reform fail. Um, I think from the perspective of the graduate students, um, it is especially hard because we don't really have that much institutional power. University administrators can just wait for us to graduate. Like there are just a lot of different power imbalances that like no matter how much work you put in feel and are impossible to surmount um so I will say that up front to be kind of a party pooper about it um as far as things that I think are, have been really effective um 
I think student organizing, um, especially when it comes to issues of labor, have been incredibly effective. So um, I think one example that I'll bring up, which is still like, like somewhat of a bittersweet example for lots of different reasons, is um, the Harvard Graduate Student Union's uh, negotiation of a labor contract with the university. Uh, that this was now two years ago, um, but it, you know, the negotiations came to a standstill and then at a certain point there was a strike. Ultimately, I think the strike was successful and they got a lot of really important um, components within their labor contract. Um, but I think it's disappointing that one thing that I think should be like almost unquestionable as far as like workplace protections go. Like the one thing that Harvard did not budge on, for example, was um, protection from sexual harassment. Um, and that was like the biggest ticket item, but that was the one that fell through. Um, anyways, uh, sorry, I probably should have given a little bit more context for it, but uh, suffice it to say, there were a lot of things that I think made graduate student life very difficult at a really, really, wealthy university like Harvard. And the only thing that I think was really effective for student advocacy was to organize in a union. That's a poignant, uh, that's a poignant, but a poignant point that you made. A lot of these roadblocks are huge institutional and organizational roadblocks that are impossible for an individual or a group of individuals to, to overcome and all. And these are some things that actively require people acknowledging the elephant in the room rather than trying to sort of solve it without acknowledging the existence of the whole elephant mm -hmm. in the room. And that's a really pertinent but a poignant point that you brought up. Thank and you. Coming to this, uh, your own experience, you talked about, uh, you have been sort of, you had a tumultuous grad school experience and all, and uh, there have been issues like gender disparity, bias and discrimination against mm -hmm. underrepresented groups that have played academia for long. So were you on the receiving end at any point of time, uh, either on basis of your gender or your ethnicity or for anything else for that regard. And how did you confront it? And did you have to tackle it any point of time on behalf of any mentee of yours? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think the kind of insidious thing about a lot of this stuff is that, you know, in the moment, like, I think I might be able to kind of identify it as discrimination in some shape or form, but like, you just kind of become shocked that like it, this happened. Um, and I mean, it, it's strange because I think sometimes when you point it out as such, like people are, the person um, perpetrating that discrimination will be the first to say like, oh, well, this, don't make this about race or don't make this about gender. Like, this is not what this is about. Like, you're just not good enough. Yeah, for example. Um, so, I mean, I guess the answer to the question, was I on the receiving end, is yes. Um, in terms of how I confronted it, like, I think a lot of times it's just, I'm just shocked that, like, you know, it just still happens to the extent that it does. Um, I remember during one of my first academic conference presentations, there was like a very senior male faculty member who, like, I mean, I think this is like just so much of a trope at this point is just like not interesting as a story, you know, where like they stand up, they like talk for a really long time, they ask leading questions, um, they like tell you very publicly that your research is bad. Um, you know, the, I think <laughs> there are like a number of things that I could have said about that moment. Um, and I think in retrospect, very clearly, it was, um, you know, an abuse of power. Um, and I think a question of, you know, taking advantage of the fact that I was very junior, I was like, didn't know what I was doing. This is like my first conference presentation. Um, and in the moment, I think I was just kind of shocked. And like when he was talking about these things and like wanted me to answer the questions, um, I honestly like didn't think too much about the fact that he was like attacking me. This is like something that my friends told me like after the fact I just like tried to kind of answer the questions and do what I needed to do to get off of the stage. Um, maybe it was just like adrenaline. Um, but I, 
ended up talking to one of my professors after the fact who was like incensed that this happened. And I have seen him do like this move like a couple of different times where he'll get a comment or a question that is like, very thinly veiled, not constructive, not asked in good faith, um, you know, runs on for a really long time. And he will say, thank you for your feedback and then move immediately to the next person, which is like the coldest and most impressive thing I have ever seen. Um, just to like simply acknowledge and then move on, um, not have that person take up any space in your head. Um, easier said than done. Um, but I think like, you know, being able to just kind of do that instead of like harping on yourself to like find the most clever comeback. I think it's great. I think it's like all purpose, um, as far as, um, you know, ways of confronting it goes. Um, I think as far as like doing that for, as a TA, um, or like a research supervisor, um, I mean, I think the best that I can do, and maybe some of my students will prove me wrong, um, is to, I don't know, listen to what they have to say, take them seriously when they tell you that something bad is going on. Um, I think there are like two ways that I could approach it, like either through official channels and through like just more informal professional support. I think like recognizing the limitations of official channels is one thing. I think learning how to make them work for you in a university environment is another. And I think the only way that I can do that in a supportive way is to ask the student what they want and give them the options that I know that exist and just try to support them for, you know, whatever it is that's happening because the world is a cruel and terrible place. And just being with someone else who, uh, can listen, I think might be just like one of the major things that I can offer. Absolutely. Those are some truly fascinating and fantastic points that you made in the last few minutes and all. And you emphasized on sort of moving on from those sort of sorts of people and not allowing them to take space up in your head and all. That was a really important piece of advice and all and coming to your work a very important aspect of your work is on data visualizations and uh, data visualizations have become pretty common and have taken on a wholly different meaning in the last year and a half with the COVID-19 pandemic raging around the world every day of newspapers magazines and social media is replete with data charts and graphs showcasing some statistics or the other and you yourself spearheaded a really terrific paper that talked about how um, visualizations data visualizations were both used and misused by both skeptics and proponents alike to buttress their points and all so could you just talk a little about that um sure uh so I guess the crux of the study was about how, um, as you mentioned, like people use um, data visualizations online to talk about the pandemic. Um, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, the study was exciting because it fused a lot of different methods that I've been interested in a while. So like computational social science with the social media data, especially from Twitter and more qualitative analysis um, by being in a lot of Facebook groups, reading a lot of forum posts, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I feel like in some ways, like, you know, I can certainly talk about the results of the study, but what's more interesting to me in some sense is like, not just the topic of the study itself, but like the way that like the work that I did with this huge team kind of materialized within the context of the pandemic. So, I mean, like the study was started and like we started it and ended it during a pandemic. To this day, I've not met in person many of the people that I worked with. Um, and so like creating a kind of research infrastructure, for example, for the two research assistants that I had on the paper itself um, and like, you know, triangulating between their expertise and, talking to my two advisors at the same time that I was talking to these two research assistants, 
Um, and then, you know, like moving on from the paper and then creating this like larger data visualization, you know, data journalism project where I was working with, um, you know, seven other people who were new and like onboarding them, having them work together because many of them had not met each other before. I think to this day, I've only met one of the um, undergrad research assistants in person. And that's only because our hometowns are like 10-ish minutes away from each other. Um, so we've seen each other then. Um, but I mean, just like getting a lot of people who don't know each other and like who are not on the same page in terms of like the things that they study on the same page to like execute a project, like that to me has been enormously rewarding and maybe the most exciting thing about the project writ large. Um, just because, I mean, transitioning to an online work environment, I think has been hard for everyone. And I think I'm very lucky that it has been an overwhelmingly positive experience when it comes to working on this project. Oh, you're, you're muted. Oh, yeah, uh, so absolutely. <laughs> That's a really interesting perspective. And coming to the results of the study that you conducted, you all had some really terrific insights and all. And how do you, and could you just sort of elucidate a bit on that aspect too? Oh, in, in terms of like the major findings, you mean? Yes. Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I need to be careful about how I talk about it because I feel like um, things can be a little bit, things can lack nuance, like when I regurgitate them. Um, but basically what I would say is that the main finding from the paper is that just harping on like looking at the data, just harping on like the objectivity of science, the objectivity of data analysis, um, the objectivity of data visualizations as a kind of unqualified good is not at, is not as effective or not as important as I once thought that they were. And I think the reason for that is some, like concepts like objectivity and truth are like very, very socially contested. And in some ways people live within different epistemological frameworks because of it. And so, you know, on the one hand, you have people who are like, look at the data, you know, obviously COVID is very serious. We need to be taking all sorts of different precautions because it has so, been so terrible. And with the same data set, um, you have other people saying that like, you know, COVID is not a big deal. You should be considering the like health of the children and like health of the economy as you um, like proceed with a lot of these public health guidances. And I mean, I think it's very striking to me that there there is a very similar rhetorical move that uh, different groups are making, you know, to look at the data, to refer to science as like a kind of recurring, um, as a recurring source of their legitimacy. And yet somehow they come to drastically different conclusions. And so I think for like the scientific community to like band together over, um, always demanding capital S science or capital T truth. Like I think that ignores a lot of social reality and a lot of the social complications with um, trying to convey a very effective and unified public health message. Absolutely, and it ties into the whole conversation we earlier had about how natural and social sciences are intricately connected and all, and the way they have moved apart and this whole veneer of objectivity doesn't really do justice to these things because as you figure out data visualization, creating data graphics and all might be hard for science things, but they can be misused by people dime a dozen and to disastrous consequences as we saw when the previous president's refusal to believe in the science and sort of use fake, uh, use these sort of aberrations and all to uh, sort of buttress his messaging led to some disastrous consequences and also we have unfortunately seen some sort of scientists also misuse their standings or their words mm -hmm. to sort of portray a different uh, 
a different message of sorts than the one that's consensually agreed on. And this whole ties into how the whole process of science can't really be dealing from the social aspects of it, no matter how objective the science is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, even the process of, you know, creating the knowledge. As you can see through the series of scandals that MIT and Harvard have gone through in the last couple of years, it's a fundamentally very social process. And, you know, especially when you get like millions of dollars involved, like it's hard not to extricate it from a lot of political projects. Absolutely. And, uh, and these are things that don't really have easy solutions to them and all. But in your perspective, with your experience and the skin in the game that you have, how do you think that one can make a more equitable and just a society of sorts where these things can be sort of incorporated, the social aspects of the science? and the natural sciences be tied together rather than where these are treated as mutually exclusive entities and all. How do you think we can course correct of sorts? Because these things have led to disastrous consequences and to prevent these sort of things from happening again, a course correction is required. So how do you think one can as a society and as an individual make those sort of course corrections? Um, I mean, like if we're talking really like big picture pie in the sky kind of interventions, I mean, I think even just like recognizing that like the humanities and social sciences are valuable in their own right is, is a start. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who just don't take that work seriously because it's not quote empirical or rigorous or reproducible. I mean, falsifiable, like pick your... Uh, pick your word uh, to impugn the humanities. Um, so, I mean, I think recognizing that this kind of knowledge is valuable and valid is one. Um, and then, you know, as an extension of that, realizing that it does not simply need to be in service of um, science and technology is another, um, that it can be valuable in and of itself as an approach um, and as like, as an area of study. Um, so I would say like, First and foremost, it's about value, valuing lots of different ways of knowing, um, you know, and I don't think that's just like limited to the, you know, this divide between like the humanities and social sciences uh, or the humanities and social sciences and the, and science and engineering, um, but also just like, you know, indigenous ways of knowing, no, ways of knowing that are not limited to academia. Um, so, I guess valuing these different perspectives and seeing them as like valid, I think is really important. Um, I think as far as like making these other kind of course corrections, I guess, um, I mean, I think one thing that has been really interesting to see in the last couple of years is um, the success, I guess, of mass mobilization um, and like community organizing, I think, uh, academics bring a lot of expertise um, and have a lot of social capital as far as that goes. And so really lending that social capital and that expertise to community movements is something that I really aspire to do in my own work and that I think other people can too. Uh, so I would say that that's maybe like two of my like big picture um, aspirations, but you know, there's expectation and then there's reality. So I'll let you know how that goes. Absolutely. But yeah, those are really brilliant points. And when, when one talks about these things, one, I remember we spoke about it in passing about um, ethics of AI systems and all, and the way they are utilized maybe by police forces or carceral systems just for facial recognition that is known to have sort of high rates of error with people of color and mm -hmm. other minorities and all and having a social perspective of the work that we are doing as scientists is really important and all when we do such stuff so how do you see this whole um, uh, thing developing over the coming few years do you see regulatory 
regulatory body stepping in as an essential mechanism to curbing these widespread usage of these systems. They are pretty much ubiquitous now from airports to sort of traffic stops, they are being used everywhere. And then there have been uh, wholly other different sets of spyware that governments have been using of late recently. The Pegasus spyware that was created by an Israeli group was in the news. And India was one of the countries where the government was found using it by dime a dozen against journalists and opposition activists and all. So how do you see these sort of things shaping up and what uh, and how do you see uh, these sort of things shaping up and how do you think we can curb the widespread usage of these heavily biased systems with which have devastating consequences yeah i mean i think certainly regulatory mechanisms are um are an important component of this i think um you know unless governments around the world kind of step in and frankly step up to kind of think about very seriously regulating a lot of these things, um, it can be very difficult to stem the spread. So for example, um, the city that I live in, in Massachusetts, Somerville has been very effective in one of the first cities in the US to um, ban the use of facial recognition um, by the government. So, you know, any city official cannot be using uh, facial recognition to be making decisions um, within the government. Um, I think that, for example, is a very, very important step. Um, and I think this has been mirrored in other cities like Berkeley and Oakland. Um, but I also recognize that it can be sometimes almost insurmountable to get these kinds of um, legislation passed. Uh, I think there are certainly really good examples where um, like the EU and the GDPR have been like very successful. I think it is certainly a first step, especially when they're talking about like, um, you know, like data protections and like the right to be forgotten. Um, you know, I think these are really important concepts that they've really been able to give legal teeth in a way that the US hasn't been able to. Uh, that being said, like, I think, um, I'm trying to think about how I want to say this because I have very complicated feelings about it. Like on the one hand, I think regulation is very necessary, especially if you're thinking about a company like Facebook or Google, you know, um, I think in many ways um, they have become like search engines and specifically have become like public utilities and should be regulated as such rather than as platforms. Um, I think you can see kind of similar issues with um, like uh, big tech like Uber and Lyft in terms of like labor issues and violations. Um, what am I trying to say here? Um, for one, they should absolutely be regulated. And I think that is an important component uh, to making a more just technological future. Is it enough? No. Um, and I think part of that is um, a lot of these tech companies have taken up a lot more space than the, um, you know, field in which they have been regulated and being able to kind of account for those isn't just a, you know, straightforwardly legislative issue, but a larger social one. Um, and that is a harder, harder <laughs> problem to tackle that is way above my pay grade. Those are some great points and truly great points you made. And these are some things that one has to actively contemplate at a point of time when these revolutionary technologies have the potential to impact the humanity as a whole in more ways than one and all. And you talked about a while earlier about how to the COVID-19 pandemic in your the work you have in being able to meet any of your collaborators blurring one and all over the last year or so. How else has the pandemic affected your work? You talked about coming back to your childhood home and been working there for so since the pandemic began and all. Are there any changes that you would like to retain in the post-pandemic world of sorts? And is there something that you're looking to get back to as soon as you can? Um, in terms of things that I've really liked, um, 
I would say that I've been very lucky and that people have generally been very understanding and flexible. I would definitely like to see that continue. Um, I feel like people take, um, you know, I'm feeling unwell or um, I just cannot be like physically, like emotionally present in this meeting or um, I'm feeling very overwhelmed. I feel like people take these things more seriously and are like very, like very willing to give people um, like some breathing room for that kind of thing, which I think has been very, very wonderful like especially when it comes to like teaching students um uh so yeah definitely would like to see that kind of kindness continue i know that that's not the case across the board um but i feel like people have been more uh attentive to it um i think other things that i'd like to see continue i like i love that people send um calendar invites like very promptly when there's like I feel like there's a kind of um cycle now to like uh making an appointment over email and then immediately sending calendar invite and then like you know very clearly circumscribing the time uh so that like everyone is off the zoom at the same time and on the zoom at the same time uh so I think that has been really great um but yeah, I mean, I feel like there are like certainly benefits of remote work that I would like to see moving forward. Um, like, I think I have really benefited from being in meetings where, like, I definitely wanted to participate, but like, didn't was not like one of the main people. And if I wasn't feeling that great, like turning off my camera and just like being able to listen in a way that's like comfortable. I think that has been very valuable. I feel like in in the before times, I might just not have showed up at that meeting because, you know, it was too difficult to get there. Um, so I think having that option has been really wonderful. Absolutely. Like in pandemic times, virtual conferences have become the norm. And in a ways, they have been sort of a boon for people from the so-called third world countries or developing countries, because for them, even garnering visas for these conferences, mm -hmm. which were typically in North America or Western Europe, was a formidable challenge. And some countries were outside ban, and the online system sort of allowed people across the world to attend these things and sort of intermingle and all whatever one can with the constraints of a virtual mm -hmm. environment but at least they could do that that was a really wonderful points you made and in your fantastic trail that you have blazed through both academia science and life how important have mentors been to you and who are some mentors who have actively inspired you and they sort of have influenced your own mentorship that you impart to your mentees Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I feel like mentorship has been so important for me. Um, I mean, of course, I have to mention my two advisors who have like really just buoyed me through graduate school. So in anthropology, my advisor is Graham Jones, who like has far and away been like the most supportive advisor, like, you know, from day one. I think he's been really formative in not only help me think in ways that I never thought were possible, but also just teaching me how to be a good advisor and how to support students. I think, you know, the first time I TA'd for him uh, was the first time that I'd ever seen him lecture. And like, even just watching him lecture, which is just a performance, um, was very, very helpful and insightful. Um, and like the way that he's kind and uh, you know, pays attention to people's needs in all sorts of different ways. Like, I feel like I've learned and benefited a lot from Graham. Um, I think, so, like, I can say things that are very similar about Arvind, my computer science advisor. Um, I think Arvind has shown me how to run a lab in a very effective, efficient, compassionate way. I think he's able to articulate projects um, very discreetly for, and like, you know, plug in a lot of different students very effectively, um, but like ultimately do that in a way that I think is compassionate to like where students are, what they need and um, getting them the help that they need in order to achieve their goal. Um, 
So, I mean, I think in terms of just like models for how to be good advisors, how to support students, how to like be a good researcher and ultimately be a good human being, like both Graham Jones and um, Arvind Satyanarayan have been really, really formative for me as mentors. Um, I think elsewhere, people who I've like really looked up to and um, benefited from their wisdom. Uh, I would say maybe Kathy Pham. She is a fellow, a former fellow at Berkman and um, currently part of the US Digital Service. Um, she does a lot of like really truly amazing work on um, ethical approaches to technology, responsible computing. Like I think her current affiliations are like the lead for responsible computing at Mozilla. And um, she teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School. And I feel like just in terms of the range of things that Kathy does and like the approach that she takes to teaching students, to advising governments and, you know, taking a critical eye to all of these different issues. I just really, really look up to her and she has been nothing but endlessly generous um, with her time and with her resources. Uh, so I could go on and on um, for like all of these different people. Um, but I will try to cap it at three for now. Those are some really inspirational mentors and some really inspir inspirational stories that you talked about and all. And what is something that you do apart? Academia can be a drilling place as you laid out before and, and all. So what is something that you do to sort of distract yourself? You talked about your fledgling interest in ceramics and all. What are some other things that you engage in to sort of um, uh, steam out the stress that academia sort of induces and all and what are some non-academic activities that you actively engage in? Ah, so I will say that I abandoned ceramics very quickly because I was so bad at it. Um, also the pandemic, but really I was just really bad at it. <laughs> um, yeah, as far as like other things that I've done, I guess like in the last year, um, I have been really into sewing. This is really more like a last month kind of thing. Um, I guess it's kind of fun to construct and make a thing that I can then use. That's like not a piece of paper. Like I can wear these things outdoors. Um, I also have a dog. I really like walking my dog. Um, I feel like she has been a crucial component of my and my partner's grad school experience. I think at the end of this, I mean, she should have an honorary doctorate after my partner got his. Um, so at this point, after I finish, I hope she will have two. Um, and yeah, I guess um, other non-academic things I do. I like to cook a lot. Um, I feel like that has been kind of on a standstill since uh, the pandemic, just because I just want to eat. Um, but yeah, I think like cultivating lots of out side of academia things that are not predicated on, um, you know, comparison, I guess, it can be really helpful. I don't know, I have a lot of other kind of like pre-pandemic interests, but like, I don't know when the next time is that I'll go like salsa dancing in a group of like lots of different people and like, you know, in close proximity with strangers, but hopefully soon. Those are some really interesting activities and individuals you have been part of. And this has been a really fascinating conversation with you on your terrific journey through science and life, replete with your patient insights on myriad topics which are really in prominence these days. And this has been a really terrific conversation overall. And finally, as a Random Walks podcast tradition, which three people would you like to come and divulge their own experience in a random walk? Um, hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think like who, who I can put up for this. Um, I guess because you're interested in a lot of like bias in AI and machine learning issues, I would definitely nominate um, Harini Suresh, who is also in the uh, visualization group. Um, I think someone similar uh, could be Jonathan Zong, um, also in this group, and thinks a lot about the really interesting juncture between um, designing interfaces and um, consent. Um, who is a third person? 
Um, I think one person who may be really interesting to talk to about like the social valences of science is um, Elena Subrino. She is an anthropologist who works on um, basically the science of disaster, like, like the anthropology and science of um, disaster and humanitarian crisis. So she works on, um, God, I hope that she doesn't kill me when she hears me like butcher the description of her work. Um, but she works a lot on water and, um, you know, environmental justice. And I think that can be an interesting perspective to bring on a lot of the kind of scientific work that people might be doing in like environmental science um, or like the infrastructure of cities. So those are the three people I would nominate. Those are some absolutely fantastic nominations. And thank you, thank you for coming and indulging us in a very fascinating random world. Yeah, great. Thank you so much.